is Mark 1, 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back as you uh, find a seat. <clears throat> and uh, I'll invite you, uh, if you brought a Bible with you, to open to... Uh, the second gospel uh, in your New Testament, Mark's gospel. <clears throat> a couple things I want to remind you of. Um, I was on the call with Shane. We were on a Zoom call after we had decided in staff meeting to pay for Shane's uh, rent in the lower ninth. And um, it was amazing. Um, just his heart of gratitude. He started crying. He had his earpiece and they were in the car. So then he took his earpiece out and told Jessica and she started crying. And then the kids started crying. And um, <laughs> my dad used to tell me all the time, and I believe it, that it's just you can't outgive God. And if you just keep giving, God will keep replenishing. And you can be uh, a vessel of blessing in other people's lives. And I say that also to remind you that uh, we, we do keep this uh, above and beyond offering up to Easter. I'm going to give you more updates. We're celebrating our 13th year anniversary here in a couple weeks, and I'm going to give you many more updates on what we're doing and what our timeline looks like. But uh, prayerfully, come uh, summer or earlier, we won't be meeting in here anymore. We'll be meeting in a permanent location. We're all pretty pumped about it, but I'll give you more details as that comes up. And uh, we're still trying to raise the funds necessary to move into that space. Um, so uh, just uh, put that before you to keep praying uh, about that. I also uh, want to encourage you to make it a priority of your life this year to have a resolution on discipleship. I don't know about you, but I love resolutions and I make them every year and I have resolutions this year to get stronger, to get healthier, to lose some weight, uh, accomplish some things that I want to accomplish and take some trips that I want to take. And I took a couple uh, days at the end of the year and thought through these and prayed through these. And then I had this realization that nowhere on my list is any sort of resolution about growing closer to God through radical discipleship. And so I had to tweak some things there and I would encourage you to do the same. You will not accidentally get closer to God in 2024. It will not happen. That is something that you are going to have to pursue. You're gonna to have to stubbornly pursue. Not because God's hard to find, but because the noise of the world is so loud. I encourage you to have some sort of resolution of how you're going to walk with God. We'll talk more about that at the end. We're back in Mark's gospel. We took a hiatus for our Advent Christmas series, and we're back in Mark's gospel. We had started it uh, a month or so before we took the break, and so we're still in chapter one. We're going to be in God, uh, Mark's gospel for probably two years, and I love it because... Well, can you think of anything better for us to give our time to than to discover Jesus according to Jesus? I, I love the, the song we just sang, A Good, Good Father. Um, as it, the opening line is, I've, I've, I've heard all these stories about you. And likely, if you're in this room, you've heard the same, all these stories. And then we look at Mark's gospel, and Mark shows us the real Jesus. All these stories we've heard, some of them true and factual, some of them not, probably. But in Mark's gospel, we get through the revelation of the Holy Spirit through the human author, Mark, who got a lot of these notes as he was a disciple of Peter uh, and of uh, certainly of Paul and of other, and other disciples, that he writes this account of who the real Jesus is. And this is important, and I've said this before, because if we don't see the real Jesus, if you just follow the Jesus that you create, 
he can't help you. The Jesus that you create can't save you. He can't confront you. He can't change you because you created him how you wanted him to be. But the real Jesus can do all those things. He can save and confront and comfort and change. And he does so in the most incredibly loving and integral way as we see him do through Mark's gospel. We start today with, well, Mark starts with this immediate action. Remember, some people call him the the comic book gospel because everything is immediate and we go from flash to flash to flash. But today we see in the middle of this incredible ministry thing that's going on, Jesus slows down. To recap, his official ministry began with uh, John the Baptist announcing he's coming and then immediately into uh, baptism through uh, John, Jesus is baptized, then straight to the wilderness to be alone with God. Then his vision sermon, only 18 words, you're not so lucky today. Then he calls his disciples, his posse together. We're going to get together and go change the world. And this bunch of ragtag, slow learning, full of fear, foot in the mouth, disciples. Let's not be so harsh. These guys changed the world. And then let's go cast out some demons. Little front line spiritual warfare. Then we're going to raise Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. And then we're going to heal all the people in the town. They all came to him and they would walk up and he would heal some that had disease and cast out demons of others. You can see the line stacking up and he's doing this and doing this and doing this. And then that catches us up with verse 35. Can you imagine how incredible the disciples must have felt to see so much suffering eliminated, to see the power in which Jesus operated, not like any other teacher they had ever been. Even they say, he teaches with authority. He commands the demons to come out. He heals the sick. They must have been living in this surreal moment that they got, they got front row seats to this incredible move of God, that the Messiah had come and he had been prophesied for so many thousands of years. Can you imagine these disciples, old Thaddeus on the front row, just like, wow, what, what, is, what is going on here? But then today gives us a little peek behind the curtain. The text says in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, that would eventually be Peter, Simon, and those who were with him searched for Jesus. And they said, uh, they finally found him. The search probably took hours. They were in the desert. And I don't know how you go from the desert to a desolate place, more deserty, wherever that is. That's where he went. They're looking everywhere for him. Hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you in verse 37. And he said to them, let us go to the next town. Doesn't even, <laughs> doesn't even address the people looking. Let us go to the next towns. Let me preach there also. That's why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. See, this is, this is the life of Jesus. This is the 90-10 principle. We've talked about this before. That 90% of Jesus' life was lived in obscurity for the 10% that we see. That it takes private discipline that leaves, leads to public victory. And sometimes we read these gospels and we're like, I want that kind of life to be casting out demon and healing the sick and speaking with such authority and operating with so much power and confidence. And those things still happen today, I believe. And it's certainly, do you have the, the power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, Paul said, now resides in you. You have the power of supernatural God residing within you. Absolutely. But most of us don't want the 90% of private discipline that structures our life in such a way with such understanding and confidence in the Father and understanding of the, the way of Jesus that would enable us to be able to operate and to walk in such confidence in the work of God. My 
my in-laws were here for Christmas Eve. And um, they have been a, just such an incredible blessing to our church over the years. Um, and uh, we, we do Christmas Eve. We had a great Christmas Eve service. And we go back, and after Christmas Eve is when I finally kind of relax. This thing's over, and we got everything torn down, and, you know. So then I'm at home, and uh, Ashley had made a, uh, a gumbo, and uh, Ashley's mom is bringing other side dishes, and I don't remember what we were eating. I, I just remember saying, man, this, this is amazing, this, this meal that you've, you know, this salad I think it was a Caesar salad I was like this is this incredible Caesar salad which is a lot to, for any salad to be incredible right and she said this is the easiest recipe you can do this yourself Luke I was like oh give it to me tell me the secret ingredients she said okay the night before I was like wait 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 wait, wait. you just said this was the easiest and then you said the night before no no no, no. there's no night befores if it's easy right She's the kind of lady that would come comes to our house all the time and makes this gourmet meal. And I'm like, Kathy, where'd you get this food? And she said, in your pantry. I was like, there's no way. Those stale crackers made this bread pudding. There's no way. But I'm going to enjoy a second helping. Thank you very much. A lot of us want the experience of the stuff, but we don't want to put the work in. Does that make sense? This is the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't start this prayer life, this walking with the Father when he started the ministry no 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 this was jesus life this is what he did and all those years that we don't see him doing anything this is what he's doing he's working on his inner life he's depending on the father so many of us want the unhurried soul that jesus seemed to operate with the peace that surpassed all understanding the joy that's inexpressible and full of glory we want those we want that abundant life but we don't necessarily want the disciplined life that leads to that abundant life does that make sense the slower pace the rejection of people that jesus just seemed to be okay with first thing i want to look at is really just two points today first thing i want to look at in this text is the dependence on the Father. See, the busier that Jesus got, the slower Jesus went. If you and I taste success, you know, popularity, productivity, our dreams are coming true. We, we finally landed the account. We finally got the bonus. We finally got the promotion. We're invited to all the right parties. We're going to finally take the trips that we wanted to. We finally got the money and the esteem and everything that we think our heart longs for. We get those things. What happens to us? We get busier and busier and busier. And the first thing to go is our walk with the Lord. It's the first thing that normally gets edged out. Think about the busiest seasons of your life. What's the first thing edged out? You don't forget to eat. You don't forget to pay the bills. The first thing typically, even in my own life, that gets pushed out or gets shrunk down is this walking with God. But not in Jesus' life. The more popular he was... The busier that he seemed to be in demand, the more demand for his time and energy and wisdom and spiritual power, the more momentum in his ministry, the more that he made time for quiet. The more diligent he was about prayer. You ever accidentally put your car in the wrong gear? You know, you, instead of putting it in drive, you went one step further and you put it in four, or maybe you've got the little fancy cars and you put it even lower than that if you can, and you start driving and you get on the interstate and you're, you're redlining, you're like, man, this car's about to blow up. What in the world? And then you look down and you're in the wrong gear. It happens in my life all the time, not just in my driving. I get short with my kids. I get upset with my wife. I get so overwhelmed and frustrated. Oh, I'm in, the, I'm in the wrong gear. 
I'm in the striving, get it all done so I can accomplish something that's on my list, regardless of the more important things around me gear. Jesus never got in that gear. If there was only one point for you to walk home with today, and I believe would direct your life for the coming year, it would be one of the greatest things that you could literally give your time to this year. It's learning how to make time for quiet so that you could hear the voice of God. This is one of the themes we're going to head to this year. Without margin, there is no mission. Without margin. If, if we fill our lives from edge to edge and we say yes to commitments from edge to edge, from the moments that we wake up until the moments that we go to bed and we try to shove everything in there all in between, there'll be no mission. We will edge God out of our life. We will be so filled with noise and obligations that even if the Holy Spirit prompts us to give this money or go to this thing or stay a little longer at lunch or actually speak this word to someone, we, we won't have time for it if we even hear him. The disciples came looking and they found Jesus praying. They likely looked for hours find him in this desolate place and he's praying. If Jesus, the very son of God, thought this was such a priority, shouldn't we? Jesus walked in what one author calls the sacred pace. Another calls it the pace of grace. See, I... I tend, if I can just make a real confession, I tend to operate more like, a, more like a camel. Like I want to hear the voice of God and I want him to set me on a location and drop a pin and this is where you're going, Luke. And I was like, I'm off. I'm, I'm going to find that. I'm going to work diligently to get it. And I will feverishly and striving work to get to that goal. Like a camel, I drink all the water I need, stored in the humps. I can go weeks without returning to the well. But that's not how God works. We see this mostly illustrated in the life of Jesus. He has this constant relationship with the Father. Why? Did Jesus not know who he was? Of course he did. Did Jesus not have all the supernatural power that he needed? Of course he did. Did Jesus lack clarity about what he was supposed to do? Absolutely he did not. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He knew the very reason he had come to earth. He knew all those things, and yet we see him diligently prioritize prayer. Why? He didn't need any more clarity. He knew the mission. He had the power, so why pray? It doesn't tell us here, but if we pan out to what Jesus taught us about prayer, even in Mark's gospel, it's about orientation is what it's about. I love Philip Yancey's definition of prayer it might be the best I've heard. You might want to write this down. Prayer is keeping company with God. Jesus shows us that God just didn't tell him to go save the world and then he disconnected for 33 years. No, it was moment by moment relationship that defined the life of Jesus. And this is what he's trying to teach the disciples. We see him in Mark 14 as he's in the garden, Gethsemane. You remember what he cries out? Abba, Father. Abba. That's the personal name for dad. Whatever your personal name for your dad is. Papa or daddy. This is what he calls him Abba. When the disciples ran to Jesus and said, Jesus, Teach us how to pray. You know, he didn't say, 
you know, if give us this day our daily stuff. That, he said that, but that wasn't first. The essence of prayer is not the daily stuff. The essence of prayer is not even forgive us our sins. The essence of prayer is not even joining God in his kingdom work. The, the essence, now all those things are in there, but the essence, what came first? What came first for Jesus when he's teaching the disciples who are ready to learn about prayer? What came first for Jesus when he's in the garden facing his most desperate, right, bitter cup that he's about to, what came first for him? Orientation, Abba, Father. And here we see the secret sauce to prayer. It's not about the daily stuff. It's not about temptation. It's not even about forgiveness. All those things are important. All those things are part of praying. But if you don't get the beginning, you're, you're going to end up in this uh, religious incantation that thinks if I just pray these words the right way, then God, this genie in the sky is going to give me this thing. And that's not what it's about. It's about orientation. It's about relationship to know the supernatural ruler of the cosmos who measures the galaxies by the span of his hand is your Abba the essence of prayer is searing the senses of the mind and the heart with the white hot fact that in Christ the lord of the universe has become your father tim keller says this i love this quote too another one worth writing down the engine of jesus's life is the joy of his sonship isn't that amazing? It's not even about saving all the people. The engine of his life is his sonship. And it's the only engine that will keep you from redlining in this life. This is what prayer does. It reorients us in three quick ways. Man, I wish I had time. We're going so slow through the gospel of Mark and I don't have enough time to get to all of it. One, it is freedom. When we learn to pray like Jesus did, it reorients it. It, it, it helps us see properly. Freedom from the lies of the enemy. Freedom from the treadmills of performance. The enemy will always tell you, you don't have what it takes. You got to try harder. You got to give more. Remember all that stuff, all that shame and all that guilt of your path. No way you're worthy enough to do this very thing. But we go to prayer. We go to pray to our father. We run to him and he runs to us and embraces us. And before we can even let out all the excuses and even ask for forgiveness of all the things, he, he welcomes us in warm embrace. Freedom from the lies of the enemy. He reminds us that he loves us more than any human love could possibly experience. Think about the height of human love that you've experienced from a mom or a dad or for a spouse or even for your kids. And, and that's not like half of the love of God. That, that is exponentially so smaller than, than the incredible love that God has for us. Freedom from the praise of men. Listen, so much of our heart is pulled into pleasing people instead of following God. Listen, don't act so spiritual like you're not, you, that this is not something you fight against. There's a, there's a new category of wealth making now, and it's called being an influencer. And those people are paid a lot of money to influence your decision making. I mean, just look at all the people who had Stanley Cups on their Christmas list this year. You know, no one walked around with 10 pounds of water in the 90s. We just didn't do it. I mean, Stanley was a company. Somehow we just drank out of water fountains and we were fine. But some influencer in this pink color, listen, I'm glad my wife and kids bring them because I can drink their water at any time that I want. I do not have to be thirsty. This was not on your list three Christmases ago. 
Why? Because some influencer has like pulled you in. And that's just a funny way. I'm not hating on you for having them. Have them. Great. I just want you to see how much your heart and soul is being pulled by what our culture is trying to define the new acceptable line. When we go to prayer, all those things, all that striving and all those, they just kind of fade away. And we're reminded that we have a secure sonship. That God loves us, not, be, not because of what we'll accomplish, but because we're his. And when we remember that we're loved like that, not only does it give us freedom, it gives us confidence. Confidence to be a rescue ship. Confidence to be a peacemaker. Confidence to be ministers of reconciliation. Confidence to head into choppy water with nothing more than the presence of God with you. Confidence to walk by faith and not by sight. Confidence to step right into the Red Sea or to step right into the Jordan or to go fight the Midianites with just a bunch of musical instruments. Confidence to walk by faith. We need that confidence because if we don't walk by faith and we only try to walk by sight, Hebrews says, we will never please the Lord. He wants us to depend on him in this radical way. Confidence, as Mary told the angel, be it to me as you have said. Confidence, faith that Mary had to go tell Joseph is the Lord that did this to me. These were not superhumans. They were just ordinary people like you and me that had their gaze fixed on a supernatural loving father. gives us confidence and it brings clarity. This may be the one we need the most. It brings clarity. When you lack clarity, pursue intimacy. When you lack clarity, what's the next step? What am I supposed to do with this money that I just recently came into? What am I supposed to do about my kids are raising teenagers or what, what am I supposed to do about this job promotion and what am I supposed to do about this and this and this? When you lack clarity, pursue greater intimacy because intimacy, walking with the Father, is what brings clarity, absolutely. You will have a thousand opportunities in front of you this very week and just because the opportunity is, is in front of you doesn't mean that's the one that you should take. Only a few of those opportunities will be God's invitation to actually take the next step. This is why prayerful consideration is the fuel of the sacred pace. Just because you get offered the promotion at work doesn't mean that God necessarily wants you to take it. This is why prayerful consideration. For all you know, that, 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 that could be a temptation of the enemy. Because he knows you, and he knows you well, and if you're going to take that job promotion, you're going to have a chip on your shoulder, and you're going to make some more money, and that's going to put you in a different kind of bracket with different kind of people, and, and you're going to give yourself to materialism. And the enemy knows this, and so he can bring this opportunity in front of you. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying what Scripture says, we should test the spirits so we get an opportunity in front of us. Instead of saying, yes, I always want to do that, we say, let me pray about it. Now, there's some things we don't have to pray about all the time. If a homeless man needs money, you should give it to him. Jesus said if somebody needed water, you should give it to them. If someone's got a legitimate need and you can meet that need, you should, you should, you should do the best you can to answer that need. But we should live this life of prayerful. Let me expand it even a little further. Even Jesus did this as he invited his disciples to go with him. And he invited them several times, go pray with me when these big decisions were in front of them. I think you should invite some other trusted people around you. Hey, I've been given this job opportunity at work. I've got this thing with my, with, with my extended family member, and it's difficult, and I don't know how to resolve it. Would you pray with me? Let's seek the Lord together. Let's come back after 24 hours or 48 hours of us diligently praying about this one thing, and let's see what we've heard. 
prayerful consideration the fuel of the sacred pace. Jesus knows this. He could have spent the next three years of his ministry in this Vegas show where he's in the desert and everybody's coming to him and, and he's in line and he's just healing and casting out demons and he would have done good work. Those people were really sick and they were really afflicted. And Jesus says, no, I've not come to do that. That's not the reason that I was sent. Because Jesus knew they had a greater need. And that need was to know the gospel and for salvation. Healing them and casting out the demon met a temporary need. He came so that he could go to Jerusalem and die on a cross to make a payment for their sin and for my sin and for your sin so that we could really be free. I'm so glad Jesus didn't jump at every opportunity. Can you imagine if you were in his shoes and you had the line of people and you had been healing and you had been providing freedom all day long for all these people and then night fell and everybody camped and there's a long line waiting for you the next morning and you don't show up? And then the disciples are coming to find you. Hey, all these you know, thousands of people, they've got problems. She's like, no, it's not why I was sent. It brings clarity. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Pray about it. We see Jesus' dependence on the Father as this radical, stubborn persistence. Again, not necessarily for clarity and, and not even for confidence in Jesus. He knew the Lord perfectly. He knew the Father perfectly. He went for orientation to be reminded of his sonship. This Eugene Peterson quote, quote I read in my devotion the first day of the year, I want to simplify your lives. When others are telling you to read more, I want to tell you to read less. When others are telling you to do more, I want to tell you to do less. The world does not need more of you. It needs more of God. Your friends do not need more of you. They need more of God. And you don't need more of you. You need more of God. Just let that sit on your heart for a minute. I don't even necessarily know what all that means. I've just been reading it every day and saying this little prayer, Lord Jesus, I feel incompetent for more of you. Can you show me what it looks like to experience more of you? To walk in more truth? To live with more boldness and faith? What does that look like? The second point is his, first point was dependence. Second point is his passion for his purpose. Jesus clearly showed us the heart of the Father was for the last, the lost, and the least. He was not being mean to the crowds that he left. He was being loving towards all of those that had yet to hear about the kingdom of God. That real hope and real joy and real salvation would be possible through him. And you see this in Jesus' life, and this is what I hope to develop in my life, and I hope that's something that you're pursuing in your own life. There's two outward focuses where declaring the good news of Jesus and displaying the good news of Jesus like two wings on a plane or two sides to a coin. You do this with your mouth and you do this with your life. The inhaled obedience, the secure sonship led Jesus to sacrificial servanthood. It wasn't just so Jesus could feel good about himself. It brought with it this burden for everyone who had not yet known the Father, the way Jesus knew the Father. Isn't that his prayer in John 17? I want them to know you the way I know you. I want them to love each other the way you and I love each other. 
You got to back up to verse 14 in the same chapter. Jesus declaring the good news. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is his 18-word sermon. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Several weeks back, Jason preached on this very text. I think you should go back and listen to it if you're, if you're new with us to unpack all of that. But he, he talks about repenting and believing. Repenting means just to change direction. It's a paradigm shift. And the shift was from striving to be good enough to earn salvation that God might find you acceptable from striving to receiving. And if we're honest, many of us still strive today. We strive out of our effort that maybe we can find peace and maybe we can find joy through good works and our good deeds that maybe we'll pile those things up high enough they'll outweigh all the bad that we've done. Well, the problem with that is the prophet Isaiah says, even the good things that you've done are really on the other side of the scale. You did them with wrong motives. Even your righteousness, it says, is as filthy rags. There's no way. What are we going to do? We're doomed. Well, we are unless, unless there's Jesus. Because Jesus redefined peace and joy and abundance and eternal life from do all these things, D-O, that's what religion is, to done, D-O-N-E. It's done. Jesus says, I, I did it. This is why he's hanging on the cross and he said, it's finished. I did it. Because of Jesus, the striving is done. Because of Jesus, the shame can be done. Because of Jesus, the guilt can be done. Jesus lived a life that you couldn't live to die a death that you should have died so that you can live life today with joy and peace and abundance. Amen? Not just in the future. Now. Now, right now, today, around the lunch table. You can be skipping out of here, bro. Knowing that this stuff that the enemy keeps coming back to you with, your past and all the things and all, all the things and all the things and piling it up and you're not worthy. You're not, you're right, I'm not worthy. But Jesus was worthy. And I'm in him. Repent and believe. Jesus displayed, Jesus declared the kingdom of God. He announced it. And you and I have the same call in our life that we're to announce the kingdom of God. We're to be reconcilers of God and other people. Jesus declared the kingdom of God, but he also displayed the kingdom of God. He lived in this both truth, this announcement, and grace, this display. The purpose of the life of Jesus overflowed into the practice of his life. Do you see the passion here that he is so dedicated to? In verse 40, this is the passage after. Let's look at that quickly. And a leper came to him. This is right after the prayer piece, going into Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God, all the Galilee. This is what he's doing. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And we've talked at length about leprosy before, this hideous disease, uncurable in its day. It begins with little red spots on your skin. Before long, the, the spots get bigger and bigger. They turn white and shiny and scaly in appearance. And then they soon spread over all the body. And then the hair falls out first. And then the eyebrows. And then most, for, for most people, 15 million people still have this disease around the world. We know a lot about leprosy. And then the beds of your nails and then the beds of your toenails would begin to lose grip and they would become infected and they would begin to rot and they would begin to fall off and then your teeth same thing the the gums that hold your teeth would lose the teeth and then they would begin to rot and if you live long enough all, all the cartilage in your body would go away your ears would rot and nose would, it was just a horrible disease and so the, 
And then even, in, and then if you got leprosy, you had to live, you got to live outside the city. I mean, you were, you were unclean. That's why he comes and didn't ask to be healed. He asked to be made clean. Lord, if you will, you will come and make me clean. As horrible as the physical suffering was, the worst part would have been the way people treated the leper. No physical touch. We know this man, Luke's version of it in Luke chapter 5 tells us that he was far into it. So it had probably been decades since he had been touched. In verse 41, and moved with compassion or moved with pity, he just stretched out his hand and touched him. The Greek means to embrace here. Embraced him and said to him, I'm willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Often if we find someone who is sick, we're moved to compassion and to meet their need, but not with lepers. Lepers, their whole appearance was so repulsive and smelled so bad because of the infection. No one could get close. They usually made people feel disgust instead of compassion. And yet this man comes to Jesus full of leprosy. The whole man's body and life was rotting and Jesus embraced him. See, Jesus healed people in lots of ways, you know. One of my favorite is when he spit in and made the little mud pies. I've told you that because that just sounds like a something a boy would do like let's just have a little fun in the mud and then he wrote in the sand right with the other lady that was called he, he liked this you know he was just in the in the dirt playing puts it in his eyes like is that necessary Jesus throwing decorum out the window here he doesn't do any of that he doesn't say hey go uh, like we talked about the uh the the, the lepers last uh, couple weeks ago the that he healed Several, and one came back grateful. He, he told them to go to the priests. And as they went, somewhere along their journey, they were healed. Not here. Jesus wants to heal this man by giving him something that's better than healing. Giving him love. Jesus used embrace. He used touch. It was against Jewish law for you to touch a leper, and yet Jesus didn't break that law because the moment he touched him, he was healed. Isn't that amazing? Then he tells him, I love this part, go show yourself to the priest. We've got no record of anyone ever being healed from leprosy before this occasion here. A little Levitical law said they had, to, they had to take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and mix it together as like this formal announcement. And I can just see those priests as that leper comes and like, hey, I've been healed. And they're like, wait, what are we supposed to do here? I don't even remember. What, looking back in the Levitical law. But here you see the compassion of Jesus through the practice of his life. He wasn't just putting sandwich boards on and megaphones warning people of the coming judgment. No, so far from that. He was with them, loving them. The passion and purpose of his life overflowed into the practice of his life. And friends, you might wonder, well, what is, what is the purpose of my life? What should the practice of my life look like? I'm glad you asked. That through you, a loving father, father, Father God would reveal himself to the ends of the earth. That's your purpose. That through you, a loving father would reveal himself to the ends of the earth. Starting with your neighborhood and reaching to the darkest corners of our globe. The practice of your life should reflect the purpose of your life. Through your words and through your love. And through your compassion, through truth announcement, and through grace display, we are to extend the kingdom of God. We are the people of God. You are God's plan to extend his love and grace 
your neighbors without hope, without joy, striving to find peace. They are looking for something that you have. What are they going to do in their darkness? What are they going to do to find the light? Oh, you. God sent you and moved you right next door to them or right across the aisle in a cubicle with them or put you in a classroom with them or on a ball team with them. Why? Not so you could just be the little nicer than the rest of the people. No, to declare and display the compassion of a loving God to them. This is why Jesus kept using these illustrations of a city on a hill or disciples known for their radical love for one another or communities formed by the gospel for the gospel. And this is what we're to be, Covenant Church. We're to be a church that is created by grace as a means of grace to the watching world around us. I love Covenant Church, but not near as I love the kingdom of God. Listen, Covenant Church, we're going to celebrate 13 years. I don't know if we'll make 20. I don't know if we'll make 50. No church has ever been around forever. Even the Ephesian church that were like, I mean, stud. Oh, the church at Antioch. I mean, studs upon studs. They're not there anymore. The best churches have a shelf life. You know what has no shelf life? The kingdom of God. It will always be. I better not get on a soapbox here. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it straight. I'm going to keep it straight. All those people with the signs. I love my church in the front of their yard. Well, great. I'm glad you love it. I hope you love the kingdom of God and I hope you tell somebody about it. I hope you show somebody with your life. I hope it costs you something. What kind of love costs us nothing? God has created a people through whom he is revealing his glory and a people that he's going to display his glory through his worth and his weightiness displayed through your life. Friends, we are those people and God's plan for your life is to display his glory. Jesus was obsessed with this, of being with people who were in the darkness and bringing them into the light. That's why the greatest charge against him was that he was a friend of sinners. And they charged him, you're a friend of sinners, and I could just see him grin. You're dang right I am. That's why I came. And if that has not been lodged against us for being lights in the midst of darkness... I think the culture is pulling on us to such a degree that we look just like it. We spend money the same way. We give our love and passions to the same thing so that at the end of our life, we can say, I was just the status quo like everyone else. Instead of saying, my life, my family, and my home, and my neighborhood was a city on a hill. Do your neighbors know? Hey, that crazy guy on the corner, he's one of them Jesus guys. Oh, I hope they do it because when their life hits some bumps, they're going to come running to you. When they get the call from the doctor and there's no good prognosis, they're going to come running. If you've extended a bridge through the display of your life, you're going to have every opportunity to declare the kingdom of God to them, I promise you. Let me end. I should end. i got like 10 more minutes. Let me share this quote with you I read this week that may be the greatest quote I've read. About the truth and grace in Jesus by John Gerstner. In Jesus Christ, we see virtues combined that, no, that never anywhere else are combined. We see tenderness without weakness, strength without a milligram of harshness, humility without one ounce of uncertainty. You see unbending convictions and yet complete and utter approachability. You see power without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity without any rigidity, never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. What is that? 
That is absolute beauty. And this is who God is through the lens of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is who the Father is. And then Paul has the audacity to tell us that we can be formed into his likeness. And then Mark has the audacity to invite us to follow this very Jesus who will radically change us into this image. Isn't that amazing? How in the world could that ever be possible? Let me give you four things. Quick. One, fight for real biblical community. We have made church showing up on the weekend. And if Jesus would write us a letter and put it in the book of Revelation like the other churches, it would be scathing. Real biblical community. Stubbornly loyal commitment to each other. Stubbornly loyal commitment to sharing the truth, even though sometimes it hurts. Stubbornly loyal commitment to loving people who are so hard to love. Continuing forgiving again and again and again. Real biblical community with other people in the race with you that can encourage you and pray with you and love you and bear burdens with you. But this kind of community is not found just with a snap of a finger. It takes time to develop, lots of effort, enormous amounts of grace, more forgiveness than, than we want to talk about. But it's so worth it. Secondly, seek discipleship. Most of us look at the things, the Christian things that we do well, and we assess our spiritual health based on that. It would be like someone who's got a terminal diagnosis going into the doctor, and he said, well, you've got this major thing, we're going to have to operate. He's like, but, gee, but, but doc, my toenails look great. No, bro, that's not how it works. Real discipleship is that every area of your life is conformed into the image of Jesus. What does Paul say from one degree of glory to the next? Seek discipleship. It'll never be convenient, but neither is birthing babies and raising kids or anything else worthwhile in your life. Friends, can I encourage you to stay after it, to pursue it? You know how you pursue discipleship? You find someone a little further around you in this community or in, in, in the community. You don't have to be in this church. And you say, hey, would you, would you disciple me? I've left a spot on my calendar for the past 13 years every week to disciple someone. In the past three years, nobody's asked. Nobody's asked. So I just go post up at the coffee shop every week and I just read Tim Keller, let him disciple me. There's people in here that will gladly make time for you. But you've got to seek it. Seek discipleship. Thirdly, cultivate a deeper walk with God. If I had time, we would go back to the text and every one of these that Jesus is doing and Jesus is creating. Cultivate a deeper walk with God. I'm so excited Jason's doing walking with God. Now, if you're a phenomenal theologian, and what I said of that quote earlier of, of Jesus, where, where every one of these, you know, strength without harshness, a humility without uncertainty, if that defines your life, then you don't need to know how to walk with Jesus. You're doing it perfectly. But if you're not doing it perfectly in this room, I encourage you, teenagers in this room, they're walking through the same thing, right? Go learn how to walk with God. They might cover 10 things you already know, but it's worth it for the one thing, to create a lab where we can learn to seek intimacy with God. What's your goal of walking with God this year? Reading God's word, meditating on it, applying it, being conformed to his image. Jesus thought it was so important to cultivate a time of intimacy with the Father, of keeping company with the Father. Shouldn't we? The last thing, pour yourself out for the sake of others. Pour yourself out for the sake of others. <laughs> I 
embarrass myself a little bit. Yesterday we were <clears throat> taking down Christmas. And my family hates taking down Christmas. Like the kids rebel. Everyone's sad. Ashley told me eight times how sad she was yesterday. And I said, you're not helping. We're all sad. Let's take the trees down. At one point, they were all doing different things. Ashley was getting groceries ready, which I'm thankful for. We need groceries more than Christmas trees down. And the kids had all run in other directions, and I was taking down the tree by myself, the hard tree, the one with individual branches. I felt this thing in my spirit. You ever felt that? Like, Dad gum this family? May, I'm going to burn this tree outside. See if I ever put another tree up in this house. I'm the one taking the tree down. And the Spirit whispered to me, I don't love you like that. I don't love you when you perform. I don't love you for what you bring to the table. I love you because you're mine. I was glad no one was around the Christmas tree because these big tears were rolling down my cheek. Friends, this is the love of the Father for you. He loves you. He's moved heaven and earth to be with you. And we keep running after the things of the world. And he's like, I'm like, I got it for you, buddy. Or pray for us. Our ushers are going to come for communion. Communion is this amazing time where we can remember the love of God through the person of Jesus for us. There's no greater love than he who gave his life for us, friends. And that's what Jesus did. And as you come to the table for communion today, I just want you to thank him for his love. If you're in the crowd today and you've not experienced the love of God, the love of the Father, I pray you, you come to him. He's waiting for you. He's just waiting. He doesn't need all the excuses. and But, but God, all the things, I've, I don't, I've died for all those things. I just want you to come home. There's nothing greater that you could start the year off than a relationship, a vibrant relationship with your father who loves you. Father, I love you. I thank you. Did you love that man full of leprosy enough to hug him and to deal with his disease, but more importantly, to deal with his sin? And I'm so thankful you love me. I mean, stubborn and ignorant and harsh and impatient. And you just love me. And I'm so thankful. And Father, I pray for our church. We'll never have the biggest buildings. I care nothing about that. I pray our community knows that they can come here and find love. I mean real love. Lord, would you make us those people so full of grace that it spills out on everyone that we get around this week and so full of truth that we're not condemning and we're not bringing some social gospel. It is the real gospel expressed through our words and displayed with our life. Lord, would you make us those people and your lost sons and daughters around this community who are looking for that hope. Lord, help us to have enough margin in our life when we bump into them that we don't blow past the opportunity. Thank you for your grace. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Be some prayer team in the back. They would love to pray for you if you want to pray with someone.
our ushers are here. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but you do have to be part of God's family. So if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're following him in obedience, then what other church you came from doesn't really matter to me. I invite you to come to the table. We're all part of the same family. Do what God puts on your heart. I'll be in the back as well if you need to pray with someone.